Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're talking to Bronco Marsetic. Uh, he wrote a phenomenal article. Was it in Jacobin? Yeah, in Jacobin, he's a staff writer for Jacobin. He wrote a great article on how online censorship is really hurting the left. And he has specific examples. He talked to Crystal Ford. He has some quotes from me. He has some quotes from Jordan Sheridan and others who were, who've were who like experienced this firsthand, Ronnie Kalik, et cetera. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. He also wrote an article titled Bernie 2024. Mm -hmm. Him and I might get into it over that a little bit because I love Bernie. I love Bernie. But I think it's time for Marianne Williamson, if you ask me. More on that uh, in a little bit. But uh, before we do that, let's talk. There's a couple things this week that are annoying me. Mm. Um, you don't love this news? That I want to talk about. <laughs> let's start with uh, the FDA ruling on nicotine and on Juul. Yeah, so two pieces here. This was so, this like came out of nowhere. I had and no they're idea. They're separate stories, but we're putting them together. Yeah, I Go mean, ahead. they're obviously related. So the first piece is, I put, I did two when I meant to do one. <laughs> the first piece is. Okay, Herschel Walker. <laughs> <laughs> the Biden administration. Signal Tuesday, it will develop a proposed rule to establish a maximum nicotine level in cigarettes and other tobacco products that will essentially lower the amount of nicotine in products available in the U.S., um, the reason they say is uh, they're doing this in an effort to uh, reduce people's addiction to smoking and give people a better shot at quitting. This is per the CNN article. Reducing the amount of nicotine in these products was also likely prevent people from starting smoking. So that's number one is they are moving to limit and reduce the amount of nicotine in cigarettes and other tobacco products. Number two, and I know this one hits close to home. This is from the FDA's announcement. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday, by the way. Today, the U.S. FDA issued marketing denial orders, never heard of that before, to Juul Labs, Inc. for all of their products currently marketed in the U.S. As a result, the company must stop selling and distributing these products. They say, this is their rationale, today's action is further progress on the FDA's commitment to ensuring that all e-cigarette and electronic nicotine delivery system products currently being marketed con to consumers meet our public health standards. According to the FDA commissioner, the agency has dedicated significant resources to review products from the companies that account for most of the U.S. market. We recognize these make up a significant part of the available products, and many have played a disproportionate role in the rise in youth vaping. So if you're wondering why they singled out Juul specifically, this is their rationale is because it's Juul's fault that there's been a rise in youth vaping. So your, they had previously banned the fruity flavors, correct? And then now they're banning even the non-fruity flavors from Juul. All of them. From Juul specifically. Yes. Now, there are a million other types of e-cigarettes out there, but they're leaving those alone and they're just going after Juul? Mm -hmm. Okay, there's like a thousand ways in which this doesn't make sense. If you're so concerned about kids vaping, well, what make the minimum age whatever you want it to be to stop the kids from vaping and then, and then enforce, enforce those it. laws? Mm -hmm. Right. So you have to take it away from everybody and else. also, also... And not just enforce those laws on the kids, but also enforce it on the companies that are marketing to kids. By the way, okay, now uh, let's get to my first controversial pick. Yeah. Not buying the whole, like, oh, the children shit, because I'm a grown-ass man, 34 years old, and what do I have right here? There's a little blue Raz flavored <laughs> vape. Ready for this? What else I got here? Oh, look, it's a little... Sour apple flavored vape. Oh, what's this one here? Cranberry grape flavored vape. Adults like this shit too. <laughs> I go to the vape store and there's there's 
70-year-old dudes who walk in. They were like, yeah, let me get the double cherry crush one, please. So this idea of like, oh, you know, it's just about the kids. Again, if your concern is kids, I don't want kids vaping either. I, You know, there is an age where it's too young to vape, obviously. Okay, well, draw the line wherever you want to draw the line. I would argue like 16 or 18 or something mm -hmm. like that. And yeah. then just enforce those laws. That's it. Right. Find the places that sell to underage kids. Find them a, 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 enough of an amount that disincentivizes them from selling it to the kids. So I don't... I don't understand that at all. I also don't understand the logic of just going after Juul because I have three different vapes here. None of these are Juul. The vape store that I go to, I don't see many Juul products in there. It's packed full of all the other stuff. But it does make you wonder, are they coming next for all different kinds of vapes? Because yeah. they banned flavored cigarettes a while ago under the same logic. Oh, what about the kids? As if like an adult who smokes cigarettes can't enjoy like a fucking pineapple flavored cigarette or some shit. I was against that. I'm honestly, I'm against this as well. And I do think this is a slippery slope. And to your other point on what they did with nicotine, that also makes absolutely no sense. All people are going to do is smoke more to get the same amount of nicotine. It's actually going to have the opposite of the effect they say they want. And nicotine's not the problem in cigarettes, by the way. Yeah. It's not. The problem is the hundreds of carcinogens. Nicotine is not a carcinogen, and it's not one of the problems. It's one of the things that's addictive, absolutely. But it's not the, the real problem or the carcinogens in the cigarettes. So for you to reduce, what you should be doing is reducing the number of carcinogens and keeping the nicotine level the same. Well, but, and this is the other thing that's, um, we'll call it inconsistent, is uh, like Roundup weed killer is a known carcinogen <laughs> that you can still, is still readily available, still can go on and get it. And so they're very lax about most of the chemicals that people are exposed to. Um, they, you know, we, you're basically the burden of proof is on the consumer to sort of prove that this is toxic and this is going to be a problem. There's huge hurdle, um, which is different from how European countries do it. But then you're just like randomly going to single out this one maker. Look, it doesn't make much sense. Honestly, this is what pisses people off about the government. So we have this concept, this idea of like the nanny state, and people mm -hmm. usually use it as a pejorative. Mm -hmm. I actually think there's two different versions of the quote unquote nanny state. One of them is very good. One of them is very bad. The nanny state that I would like is if the government gave everybody health care and said, hey, we're going to take care of you. The government gave everybody free college and said, hey, we're going to take care of you. The government gave you a UBI and said, you know what? You, you can get $1,000 a month. You might need that. Yeah. That would be a good nanny state. The bad nanny state is... We live in a system right now where on none of your actual material needs does the government help you, but then they turn around and try to stop you from doing shit that might hurt you even if you want to do it free of your own volition. Right. That, like, fuck off with that. That's well, why I've always said I'm, I'm what I would call a libertarian leftist. Libertarian on social issues, leftist on economic issues. That means when it comes to your private life, Live and let live. You do whatever the fuck you want. You want to put your balls in a vice grip? Go ahead. I don't give a fuck. It's not my thing. But if that's what makes you happy, I don't want the government to say, oh, that's very dangerous to your testicles. And maybe we should come up with some new rules to make sure that you don't hurt your balls in that vice grip. Piss off. Piss off. Piss off. I, this is overreach. If you want to regulate cigarettes to make them less dangerous, fair enough. But reduce the carcinogens. Leave the nicotine level the same. What's going to happen now is people are going to smoke more to get the same amount of nicotine. It's like when when Bloomberg banned the, the big gulps. The sodas, It's like, yeah. yeah, okay, you get two of the smaller ones, you fucking prick. What's wrong with you? This is this is not how you address problems. It's this moral busybody stuff, but it's a broken, it, they have a broken moral meter. Like yeah. they're outraged at all the wrong things. Right, and then also, you know, if they really cared about 
people's health, then maybe they would support things like Medicare for all instead of instead of Biden saying outright that if it even came to his desk, he would veto it. So it's very strange. It's very selective. It's very uh, it's very sort of patronizing. And obviously, as a leftist who, you know, wants the war on drugs to end and thinks that drugs right, should be yeah. legalized and decriminal, I put nicotine, I put alcohol certainly in the same category. I would treat them exactly the same as I would treat other drugs. That's a great point. Why is it that everybody on the, almost everybody, I don't know, maybe there's like 5% that don't agree with this, but like 95% of people on the left would immediately be like, we got to end the drug war. You know, we have to, uh, effectively people say legalize weed. Legalize weed. Some people say mm-hmm. legalize tax and regulate everything. Mm-hmm. So everybody understands that doesn't mean drugs are good for you. There's plenty of drugs that are very bad for you. But there's this idea, there's this notion of like, hey, if you are choosing free of your own volition to make some bad decisions and put some substances in your body that might hurt you now or hurt you in the long run, that's a decision that an adult gets to make. But suddenly, when you change the topic to like cigarettes or vape, now that's like, no, we need to go in there and control you as much as possible. you've seen some lefties supporting this, right? Yeah, I've seen some things on Twitter that were like, you know, very smugly uh, saying, I, I, what's, what's with the pro-smoking left, the pro-cigarette left? Cigarette is poisonous. It's like, yeah, everybody knows it's fucking poisonous, and some people still choose to smoke in the same way. People, everybody knows alcohol is alcohol poison. Is very bad for people you. People choose to fucking take six shots of tequila yeah. sometime there's on a Friday also, night. I feel like How about you piss off out of our private lives? There's How about also that? some classism in that too, because um, people who are like working class or who are lower income more likely to smoke. Um, and so there's there's always these weird like classist and racist judgments about people's particular vices, where what you deem to be really bad and really out of bounds and need to be cracked down on often depends less on how bad that substance actually is versus your perception of where that substance falls in like the social hierarchy. That's so true. And let me just break it down for everybody in as simple terms as possible. This is like the broader view of it all. There are libertarian leftists and there are authoritarian leftists. Authoritarian leftists like to do stuff like micromanage what you put in your body Uh, and like to control speech and want social media to crack down on free speech. That would be authoritarian leftism. Libertarian leftism says, live and let live. You do whatever you want. Even if it does end up hurting you, you have the choice to do that. Uh, But, you know, the leftist portion of it is, is the economic portion of it and perhaps the foreign policy portion of it. But in terms of the social issues, I mean, I really don't like I don't know how long ago this happened, but there was a time maybe a couple decades ago where leftists started moving away from like social libertarianism, mm. freedom, embracing freedom. And they started moving towards like, no, I'm going to try to enforce what is right and wrong to you in your personal life. And I just don't like that. And, you know, I used to argue back in the day, authoritarianism by definition is right wing. That's clearly not the case because there are lefties who are saying this is, you know, this is a good thing. Or, I mean, I've heard it from lefties ban cigarettes. Look, I'm in favor of regulating them to make them less shitty but I would never ban cigarettes. People should be, are you kidding me? People live lives where they're busting their ass and working overtime and they're struggling and the one little piece of happiness that they get that they've mm-hmm. decided makes them feel a little bit better, you're gonna step in and say, no, that's bad for you. I'm not gonna let you do it. Fuck off, man. Hell no. Yeah. That is not and, my and by kind the way, of leftism. We're not gonna, now this isn't for the lefties, but for the, the liberals, but we're not gonna do anything to like make your life easier. So maybe you don't feel like you necessarily need that or to be able to promote healthier activities or promote your health in other ways that would be, you know, 
sponsored and supported by the state. We're just going to like pick on these few little pleasures that you have in your life. Yeah. I, look, I want the government to support people economically. Um, I want there to be a strong social safety net and universal programs. But also as a matter of principle, I wouldn't want to micromanage anybody's private life. Yeah. And they could use whatever advice they okay. want to use. And, and that's the end of it. And so I'll end the segment by doing this. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. You got another one for us, Kyle. I do. I do. All right. So um, this is a story that popped up on my feed yesterday. The Associated Press is reporting that Democratic gubernatorial nominee Joe Cunningham is proposing a 72-year-old age limit for South Carolina politicians. And that's a cap that would cut off the incumbent governor, Henry McMaster. Hmm. And uh, now in South Carolina, that would take a constitutional amendment and voter approval in order to implement. But now we're having the conversation of, hey, should there be a limit for quote-unquote geriatric politicians? So, um... I actually think, so first of all, I am totally opposed to this, by the way. I'm also opposed to term limits and things of that nature because I believe in the democratic process. I believe voters should be able to choose the elected official that they want. Now, what I would say is, and I think this all comes up right now in the context of Joe Biden not, you know, doing so great. You've also got Dianne Feinstein, who's clearly like, you know, suffering from some sort of dementia or something of the sort where she really struggles to just remember basic things at times, people that she's known her whole life. There's significant reporting on this in this regard. So I am not in favor of blanket arbitrary age limits that would tell voters like, you may want Bernie Sanders next time around or last time around, but you can't have him because he's just too old. Therefore, you must have Pete Buttigieg. Not in favor of that whatsoever. What I am in favor of is, number one, we should be able to talk openly and honestly about um, people's age and how it may or may not be impacting them at this point in their life. We saw a real shutdown on that during the Democratic primary with regards to Joe Biden. It went from being okay to talk about to being like completely like you can't say anything and it's if there's any problems, it's because of his stutter. So that's number one. Number two, I think that candidates should have to uh, engage in debates and in taking direct questions from the press so that it's not so easy for them to hide if there is a decline in their mental capability and their, um, you know, their capacity to do the job. So it should be totally legitimate factor for voters to consider in a democratic process, but to just have a hard cutoff, no, you can't run somewhere, you can't run, and voters don't have uh, the ability to vote for that politician over a certain age. No, I don't support that. So, um... I agree. I don't support limiting them. Um, but I will say, I don't, I honestly don't view this as, at first I thought it was different, but now I'm realizing I don't think it's different to the age limits on the lower end. Like if, what if there's a 14 yeah, year I, old or, or a 15 yeah, year old? I, who, I don't really support those age limits either. So you would get rid of those? Yeah. All right. So, so you're, you're consistent. But like I was at when I was thinking about this, I was like, ah, that idea is crazy. Don't ban old people from doing it. And then I was like, well, hold on. We have rules on the lower end. Yeah. You could be the most brilliant 15 year old, 16 year old in the world. And it's like, sorry, you can't run for office. You're too fucking young. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, again, I would put in place in place 
uh, requirements to make it a more robust democracy so that voters have access to uh, greater information about whether this person has the capacity, the knowledge, et cetera, to be able to do the job, whether it's at a young age or an old age, but to just like blanket, you know, say, no, we know better. Nobody outside of these bounds could possibly be fit for the job. Now I'm not down with that. I, I do think we have a problem though. Like I do think it's an actual problem that we have geriatric elitist assholes who run the country. You know, like you mentioned Dianne Feinstein, thinking somebody like Chuck Grassley. I mean, these are people who are sincerely in way over their heads. Some people are literally struggling with dementia. Um, you know, it's, I mean, you see this sometimes even with the Supreme Court, whenever like technology and the internet comes up, they just, they literally don't know what the right. fuck is going but on. But like Bernie is a perfect example of would you want though a, a law that says Bernie can no longer run for Senate in Vermont. We're going to take whatever the next, you know, whoever runs and wins that next seat, who is probably not going to be as good as Bernie Sanders, who's chair of the budget committee and in positions of power. Like, would you want it to be just off the table? You can't have Bernie. Sorry, he's too old. Well, no, that's why I said I agree with yeah. you. But I'm also trying to say there there are real problems yeah, there, here. Like, there are. And I think, I think that comes down more to... Um, First of all, the problem is actually worse on the Democratic Party side than on the Republican side, just in terms of the uh, average age is younger on the— What is it, like 70 and 78? Yeah, I mean, it's not <laughs> great on either place, but it, there is a significant difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party on this issue. And I think it's because Demo the Democratic Party really is a cartel just devoted to keeping incumbents in power and keeping leadership specifically in their positions. And so, you know, you've got this, if you think about Pelosi and Clyburn and all these people are up there, they're like in their 80s, uh, in their 70s and in their 80s. And they just stay there forever and they lock anyone else out of ascending into leadership positions. So I think that's part of it is they're just so committed to that seniority protection and incumbent protection that um, there's a, a system issue there that isn't so much about just we need a, an age limit. It's also about the power of incumbency that keeps these people in office for so long. Yeah, um, that's true. Again, I just... I'm not in favor of what this guy is calling for, but I really do see a sincere issue where, I mean, the fact that Dianne Feinstein hasn't stepped aside is borderline criminal. Like that, I find that borderline criminal. Like your brain doesn't work anymore and you're insisting on holding on to power. Well, and again, the issue uh, to me is the fact that uh, the process protects her because she doesn't have to do she doesn't have to do debates. She doesn't have to answer questions. She can just be sort of like hidden and protected by her staff. Last time around, um, remember the left ran someone against her and the Democratic leadership went out of their way to crush that candidacy yeah, and say, we have to have criminal. Diane right now, um, Pelosi and co are doing everything they can to cover up just how much she has deteriorated. You know, you made an interesting point before too about term limits, how you don't support term limits. Yeah. And um, on the one hand, I... Totally understand that because term limits are definitionally undemocratic. Yeah. You're telling people, oh, no, you can't pick this person again. But the argument on the flip side of it is there is sort of a built-in protection against any sort of authoritarian or or dictator-type dictator, dictator type move. Mm. Because you're saying, no, you have this hard date and then you're out. And then that's it. Yeah. So I, I kind of can see... Do you Both see sides that, of that argument? Do you only would you only support it then at the presidential level? What about other levels? I honestly I'm agnostic on the idea of term limits. I see arguments in favor of them, but I also don't like how they're undemocratic. So that's a big strike against them. Uh, I was just kind of thinking out loud as we were talking about it here, but 
yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think they're like some people like Andrew Yang seems to think it's one of the things on the short list of like cure-alls. No. Like, term limits will fit. And it's like, no, no of course it, we've had fucking, we've had term limits at the presidential level. We got George W. Bush and Bill Clinton who are fucking massively corrupt. Donald Trump, you know, like it, it's not a cure-all is my point. Yeah, the I do way, think it's a debatable policy. I guess, uh, the way point. it works out to uh, some of the states that have term limits is basically uh, you end up, it, it sort of strengthens machine politics in a way because then you end up like people know, okay, this person's going to be term limited out. Who's our next successor? And so there's the hand-picked successor mm. that everybody lines up then for the seat. Yeah, I can see that. So it doesn't introduce, this is all a long way of saying, there's no substitute for having actual democratic processes in place that allow citizens to engage with who the candidates are, who they should be, that doesn't consist of like a mountain of cash going to incumbents and protecting them forever. Like there's no substitute for having an actual democracy in place. You can't do these workarounds that sort of arbitrarily say like, ah, we're going to mix things up by having term limits or we're going to mix things up by banning old people or young people or whatever it is. Mm. Okay. Well, anyway, I thought that was interesting. I don't. I don't think is it's going to go dude, anywhere. Is he? You said the same thing about the governor. Is he like angling to be governor? Is that why he floated this, or is this just like? Don't know. I don't know. I don't know why he did this, but obviously Probably he's trying reaction. to. He's trying a to get Republican, the, right? Get the a Democratic gubernatorial oh, candidate. He's trying to cut off the incumbent Henry McMaster. Oh, it I is see. sort of a real scummy way for him to do it too. You know, that seems so scummy. Yeah, so he's he's trying to make the case like, oh, this dude who's who's in charge right now, he's too old. He shouldn't even be allowed to run. That's what he's saying. Yes, I guess it it is it is sort of scummy. But then you also like I I keep coming back to Diane Feinstein and Chuck Grassley because like they should be in a retirement home right now for real. Feinstein like, for because it is true. Sure. Like when you look at when you look at like a, a real kid, right? Like an eight year old. You look at an eight year old and you go. You just simply don't have the mental capacity to make important decisions. Right. And at the same time, the same shit is true of Dianne Feinstein. But like, she literally doesn't have the mental capacity to be in a position of power right, right. now. Right. But again, like, and I know you I know you agree with me on this, but like if Bernie was 110 years old and he was running against Pete Buttigieg, I would there was no doubt I would still pick Bernie over Pete. And I would too, you know? but you used to run into the it's a numbers game though as well, because you run into the problem, okay, would you sacrifice one Bernie Sanders to get a hundred people with dementia out of power? It's like at some point you gotta be like, I kinda need to do that. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So that's what I'm saying. It's it's a difficult conversation, but I just found it funny that on the lower end, nobody bats an eyelash at the idea of you need to be a minimum age to run. But at the top end, you know, people are very strongly yeah. against any sort of movement in, in limiting at the upper Again. age. The other thing is with modern medicine, yeah. it, 100 is going to be the new 60 at some point, right? Like people will be 100 years old true. and relatively that's, healthy. That's so, true too. So you can't really put it on unless you're going to do and a sliding scale or men something. Men live shorter time than women. So you have a different one by Fucking gender. discrimination <laughs> against my people. I also think that we just should have a like, we should relax about you shouldn't get smeared as ageist by raising the question and by having open discussions about whether, you know, a person is capable of doing but the job. That's, I think that's true, but I do also think ageism is a real thing, I think, too, though, you know? I do think it's a real thing, don't you? Yeah, but you're also the one out here saying that these senile old people need to get out of office. I didn't say that. I said <laughs> I'm not in favor of this rule. I just think it's an interesting conversation. <laughs> but I guess my point is, you're right that a lot of the times people have this conversation, it's not ageist, but there are conversations that are ageist. 
Like ageism is a thing. That ageism exists, I guess is, my is point. a thing that exists. Right. Yeah. However, I don't think it should be. It should create a blanket ban on discussing, for example, whether you know Joe Biden had the capacity back in the Democratic primary, or whether Dianne Feinstein has the capacity. I mean, Biden clearly forward. doesn't have the capacity, and Dianne Feinstein, like, time to take her behind the barn. <laughs> That's a joke, guys. Relax. Relax. I do not. Do, do not, not co-sign that sentiment. Go ahead, cancel me. I don't read my Twitter shit anyway. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> All right. On that note, um, let's get right to our guest, Bronco Marcetic, who wrote a uh, wonderful piece in Jacobin about uh, censorship and how it's hurting the left and is a staff writer for that magazine. Here he is. Bronco, great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So I want to start with not just because you have some great quotes from me in it and also mentioned Kyle in it, mm-hmm. but this recent article that you wrote that I think is actually really important. You say YouTube censorship is a threat to the left, um, which is something, you know, I very much see and very much believe, but it's not always a view that is typically represented. So just lay on a bit of the case that you make in this piece. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, look, uh, the left relies on an open internet in many ways to, to be successful, to get its message out. We don't have any cable news shows. We, we're not on cable news uh, networks that exist. Uh, we, we don't have really a presence in kind of the, the mainstream establishment media, whatever term you want to use. Uh, so we really, the, the success of left media in the last, you know, whatever you want to say, 10 years, five years, uh, has relied on being able to kind of use uh, use the web to, to get our message out. And, and YouTube's censorship efforts are, are a real threat to that. Um, the way that YouTube's kind of, Content moderation, that's the, the the term that people prefer nowadays. Uh, the way that it's it's meant to work is it's meant to get rid of false information. It's meant to get rid of conspiracy theories. It's meant to get rid of uh, all sorts of harmful misinformation, disinformation, fake news, yada, 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 uh, which is a, a fine and noble goal in theory. Uh, but in reality, uh, what that means is that a lot of independent media whose uh, message or whose coverage brings up uh, uh, facts and reporting and, and perspectives that don't align with the uh, the kind of coverage that you see in, in establishment media tend to get targeted because uh, to someone who's not particularly uh, super well-informed or, or well-versed in, in what is going on uh, in the world, what's going on in American politics and elsewhere, uh, it might seem like that is, in itself is misinformation. Uh, of false information. And um, and it's not just that. I mean, there's also a commercial aspect to it as well. Uh, and and uh, Kyle has obviously talked about this a bunch. Uh, but uh, the way that uh, to, to prevent a, a an advertiser revolt, YouTube in, uh, ends up demonetizing or even outright censoring uh, stuff that is uh, uh, potentially offensive to advertisers, so that it can, um, you know, continue to reap uh, financial rewards. Uh, and and what that means is anything controversial uh, ends up getting penalized in this, whether it's you know uh, the war uh, coverage of the war in Ukraine or um, you know coverage of of uh, COVID or, or what have you. Um, and I think the other kind of aspect of this is is you know. Not to make it all sound like it's some sort of sinister, uh, uh, evil conspiracy from the top. Uh, a lot of it is that um, the, the the moderators, the censors who are employed by YouTube, as well as the algorithm that just sort of censors this stuff 
automatically, uh, can't always tell the difference between what is misinformation and what is simply reporting about misinformation or even critiquing misinformation. You know, I, I mentioned a bunch of um, different examples in that piece, but all the way back in 2017, you can find a case of YouTube, for instance, uh, taking down a uh, a video um, kind of debunking Holocaust revisionism, Holocaust denial, by uh, uh, Project Syndicate, a, a video that did that because uh, they thought it was actually promoting Holocaust denial. Mm. Because, you know, there's so much content out there. It's, it's hard to kind of um, be able to really delve deep into every single uh, video and make sure that it's actually, you know, what you think it is. So uh, that's basically the kind of case I was making. Okay, so there's a million directions I could take it. Let me just start by giving you some of my personal experience because I have direct experience with exactly what you're talking about there, which is YouTube being incapable of differentiating. Differentiating? Is that a word? Okay. Now then. Bet <laughs> between, <laughs> between like um, misinformation and even critiquing misinformation. So everybody's familiar with Alex Jones and the court case that he had recently about Sandy Hook and... Uh, one of the things he did in the wake of that scandal and getting sued is he did a media tour to all friendly outlets to him where he basically said, I never said that. I never said Sandy Hook was a hoax. I never said it was a conspiracy. I never said they were crisis actors. I never said, and he repeated that over and over and over and over. So on my channel, what I did, um, some other outlet put together a compilation of everything Alex Jones said on Sandy Hook right after it happened. And... Suffice to say, he absolutely said all those things. He said it was, they were crisis actors. He said it was a hoax. He said, Obama's going to come take all your guns. And so on my channel, I had that video talked about how much Alex Jones is a liar and talked about, um, you know, he said these things that he says he didn't say now. And uh, those are the facts. Well, that video got not just demonetized. It got pulled from YouTube. <laughs> it got pulled. Um, another example, Donald Trump, this wasn't even that long ago. This was maybe five, six months ago, something like that. Uh, Donald Trump went on, I think it was the Full Send podcast, which is just like, you know, a very bro-y podcast where they talk sports and stuff. And every now and then they wade into the world of politics and they had Trump on and Trump, you know, a couple times in the podcast, he pushed the idea of what's called the big lie. You know, uh, the election was stolen from me. It was rigged and uh, January 6th was whatever. Patriots trying to <laughs> take their country back or whatever. I covered a part of that podcast. The, I didn't even cover the part where he talks about the big lie. I just covered another part of it and like would pause the video and respond and break down some of his comments. That video also didn't just get demonetized. It got pulled down wow. by YouTube. So just the, just the fact that the algorithm picked up the fact that I was playing a portion of that podcast was enough to have it and it wasn't even totally the portion that dealt with And it wasn't Alexa even the Mike. portion that dealt wow. with that. So what Amazing. we're talking about here and, you know, I don't even grant the idea of like, oh, well, in theory, the idea is good because I could dis I disagree with that on other grounds. But even if you do grant that idea that, oh, in theory, we understand what they're trying to do, no false information, no conspiracy theories, et cetera, we don't have the technology or the machine learning or the intelligence or the manpower enough to really go through these things with a fine tooth comb, even to enforce the so-called noble goal of like, you know let's only take down the bad things. Yeah. So I just I wanted mean, to share that with everybody. There, the perfect example that came out after your piece, Bronco, was um, they actually pulled one of the videos from the January 6th committee mm. hearing <laughs> because it had Trump saying whatever nonsense he said about election lies. Now, my hope would be 
that um, liberals and people who are like left liberals and who are in favor of, you know, increasing censorship from the tech companies would look at that and say, oh, this is insane, right? This shows the dangers of this regime. But, you know, I was talking to Ryan Grimm about this, and I think he might be right. Their reaction by and large is more, well, that's not good that they did that, but I would rather they go too far than that they not go far enough. I mean, how do you combat that thinking when, you know, I, and I'd be curious what your sense is of, of why people have gravitated towards these answers rather than, you know, what Kyle and I have tried to do of, I did the Dinesh D'Souza movie. I went through it line by line to tell people why this is nonsense rather than just trying to push it, you know, to push it offline or to censor it and say, we can't talk about this whatsoever. We try to engage and inform rather than just silence and dismiss. But there's clearly a, a deep instinct in the other direction. Where do you think that comes from and how do you think we combat it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of it is this uh, thing that's been commented on a, a lot uh, in, in in terms of less spaces in, in the last little while. It sort of relates to also the the kind of some of the, the ultra punitive, um, uh, unforgiving cultures that have that have uh, sprung up in these spaces as well. Uh, people, I think, have uh, recognized that the the U.S. political system is in gridlock; that it doesn't really answer to ordinary people; that it's it's kind of hopelessly dominated by money. Uh, that the uh, horizons for serious and, and necessary political change are, are, are just getting further and further away. Uh, and so what do people do? They end up kind of gravitating to the solutions that they think uh, are still, um, that they still can do, um, you know, in in some cases, it's you know they end up kind of trying to uh, solve uh, racial justice issues and the, the history of kind of racial discrimination on an interpersonal level with their employees, uh, with their fellow employees rather. Um, in this case, I think uh, you know the the censorship regimes that are springing up all over uh, uh, social media platforms. That's still seen as something that that people mostly agree with and that the the U.S. government can do. And so it ends up being kind of the the uh, solution that, in, that that people gravitate towards. In the same way that, you know, we had uh, you know hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S. die from COVID um, uh, when when Biden came in, there was all talk of kind of doing all these kind of radical proposals to to to, to stop its spread. Kind of disappeared entirely. Uh, people just said, "Well, we can't really do anything about it." Yeah, as soon as January sixth happened people kind of uh, uh, were immediately saying, you know, we need to pass, uh, 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 we need to, to start a domestic war on terror, we need to do what we did after 9-11, because that's th this kind of censorious, heavy-handed, repressive stuff is the only thing that the, uh, what seems like the only thing that the, uh, the the U.S. government can still do. So mm. I feel like that's a big part of, of, of why people are gravitating to that. And I think, you know, you you had a really great um, quote uh, that, that you gave me for that piece where you talked about how, uh, people on the left and, and, and liberals are kind of jettisoning this tough, um, very painstaking and, and uh, often not immediately rewarding work of trying to persuade people, trying to build coalitions, trying to find, you know, things in common with people who they otherwise disagree with. Uh, and they're just kind of going to the shortcut. That's what it feels like. It's a shortcut to the kind of political... Um, ends that you want, if we just get rid of all the bad things that are being said, then people won't think any more bad things and bad things won't happen. But, you know, I would say if people really honestly believe that, 
then how do they explain the fact that, okay, uh, the last six years, at least five years, uh, censorship and all these platforms has ramped up to a point that it, it, it was never at before. Uh, and it, it seems to kind of escalate and escalate every single year. And yet we still have problems with misinformation. We still have problems with extremism. January 6th happened, you know, five, six years after all this stuff began. Um, uh, more people now believe uh, uh, that there was some sort of election fraud uh, than they did, you know, before January 6th. Mm. Uh, it seems to me like this approach isn't really working. And then the question is, what I, I think the, the better question is, instead of saying, how do we get rid of all the bad ideas that are floating around out there that are convincing people all these different things? I would say, what is it that's driving people to go towards these ideas, to accept them and, and to, to sort of uh, not listen to what are technically meant to be trusted authoritative sources uh, but rather go to go to uh, places where you know people like Joe Rogan who who openly say, "Hey, I have no idea what I'm talking about. You shouldn't listen to me." And yet people go, "Hey, actually, I trust this guy uh, more than than all these other entities." I think that's a, that's the bigger question. Uh, what is the root cause that's actually driving people? And it's it's the same question that that I think the left and most uh, or at least many liberals would. Uh, Ask when it comes to an issue like crime. We, we, I think we've we've gone past the point where we believe that just locking people up for a long time and um, you know uh, throwing away the key and and doing all these terrible things to people uh, when they commit a crime, however serious or, or terrible it is, is actually going to stop crime. We, we understand there are root causes, there are underlying conditions that lead people there. We should have the same approach, I think that we have uh, towards that issue uh, to issues like misinformation, extremism, and a whole host of other other things, by the way. Yeah. And I, you know, me personally, I don't even think about it from the perspective of, is it working or is it not working? I view that as an ancillary question. I try to start from thinking about it from a principled perspective. So if you look at the big picture, yeah, the, the best case argument you can make for them is they're just trying to do the right thing by getting rid of false information, misinformation, disinformation, quote unquote, conspiracy theories. But then you get immediately, you walk into a deeper question, which is according to who? Like, okay, you're going to get rid of the bad things, but according to who? And it starts, it always starts with the easy ones, right? Where it's like Holocaust denial. Yeah, everybody agrees that's wrong and that's bad and you shouldn't do it. And so it's easy for them to be like, okay, well, let's put that in the bin of get rid of it. Then, it, you know, you take a little micro step forward. Okay, QAnon. Okay, it's bad. It maybe has some dangerous effects, but probably 90% of people who believe in it are just, you know, not harming anybody and just believing dumb things. Then you go one step for us. Okay, well, 9-11 truth? I mean, that's one where there, that sort of crosses all partisan divides. There's some conspiracy camp on the right and the left in terms of 9-11 um, truth. Then you go to, well, World Economic Forum. Well, some of the stuff about the Great Reset is a little kooky and makes no sense, but I'd argue maybe 30 to 40% of the stuff that's said about the World Economic Forum is actually just accurate criticism. Then you get to, all right, what about the JFK assassination? Well, that's, you know, a majority of the country doesn't buy the official story on that. And then you get to stolen elections. Okay, well, I agree based on the evidence, based on your great work responding to Dinesh D'Souza and everything I've seen on it. Yeah, there's nothing to the idea that the 2020 election was stolen. I mean, over 60 court cases, the Arizona audit, we got our answer. 
But I do believe the 2000 election was stolen because every way you do a recount of Florida in 2000, Al Gore wins. So should that opinion be censored? Like That, that sounds like a conspiracy theory to me. See, that's yeah. my point is that a lot of people would say, wait a second, that's hypocritical because you say the 2020 election isn't, but you say the 2000 election is stolen. How do we differentiate between the two? The idea that we're going to be able to get through all these questions in a way that satisfies everybody is impossible, and it necessitates the idea of a ministry of truth to make the decisions. There's going to have to be, if you're going to go with this model of getting rid of the false information and the conspiracy theories, et cetera, somebody's going to have to determine what counts as false information and what counts as a conspiracy. And I, I don't trust anybody to be holier than now and be perfectly objective to make this, these decisions in a way that's fair. And then we get to the even bigger problem of what do you do in a situation where mainstream media relentlessly gets things wrong, whether it's, you know, mm. Russiagate. They got so much of Russiagate was just nonsense. The uh, Trump's a Russian agent since 1987. He get gets pissed on by hookers, no evidence of any of this shit. <laughs> Endless war propaganda where, you know, you had Brian Williams damn near coming in his pants over watching our missiles get launched at a Syrian airport. <laughs> this stuff is okay with them. COVID misinformation, during, during the peak of COVID, Nobody really knew what the fuck was going on. Nobody had the real answers because we're learning in real time with the science. Yeah. And so you'd get people like Dr. Fauci go out there and say things don't like, don't wear a mask. Okay, so should you censor Dr. Fauci? Should Dr. Fauci not be allowed to say anything in perpetuity because he got so many things wrong early on? There's no way of parsing these questions in a way that's intelligent. So what you have to, the least bad of all bad options is like, just let people say whatever they're going to say and let the chips fall where they may. And sometimes that has good outcomes and sometimes that has bad outcomes. But you can't just, like you said, take the shortcut and rely on a ministry of truth with people who don't know anything more than you do and let them make all the decisions. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't understand how anyone can watch or who has watched the last you know six years believes that anyone, any one person can be responsible, uh, uh, can be relied on. To, to accurately sift through what's misinformation and what what isn't it? You know, you mentioned Russia again. I mean, think about just the way that the Hunter uh, Biden laptop story was instantly declared by everyone uh, in the establishment. This is a fake story. It's Russian disinformation. Blah 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 blah. Then quietly, what uh, less than a year later, uh, they go, well, actually, no, it ends up being true. It's actually completely all authentic. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what we did before. Uh, there's so many cases like that. I mean, with the, this war in Ukraine, we we had a uh, a five year long uh, and ongoing kind of freak out over uh, social media platforming uh, far right groups and allowing them to kind of organize and disseminate their messages and, and to kind of um, market themselves to, to ordinary people, which is still being used to justify further internet censorship. And yet, meanwhile, now you have all manner of uh, uh, establishment outlets, mainstream outlets, the BBC, CNN, uh, uh, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the, 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 the Times in London all of them suddenly whitewashing neo-Nazis in Ukraine because it happens to be, you know, geopolitically convenient or it happens to kind of, you know, uh, uh, telling the truth about it might, you know, undermine uh, the Ukrainian war effort. I mean, the way that the truth has been used as a political football over the last five years, not just by the right, but by everyone, um, you know, the way that facts suddenly change, depending on what is uh, what's best for that situation. Uh, I don't understand why we would assume that um, in that kind of climate, 
we can suddenly just say, yeah, yeah, go ahead and just uh, censor whatever's misinformation. Because whatever's misinformation today could end up being the truth tomorrow, and then what's the truth today ends up being mis- misinformation tomorrow. And that's what we've seen over the past years. So it doesn't, doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, Lab Leak is another obvious example of that, where mm-hmm. it wasn't just like, you know, this is incorrect. It was the scientific, they've decided, and you're racist if you say otherwise, and you're going to be censored, and, and, and all of those things. Ahead of the FDA, or FDA or one other health human services, somebody came out at the same time and was like, actually, I think this is probably the most reasonable explanation. So somebody within the government, in one of the official institutions that makes health decisions, was like, I actually don't think this is crazy to say this. At the same time, the rest of the scientific community was like, you can't say it in a trace. Yeah, with a lot of financial incentives involved that weren't being disclosed at that time. I mean, the one thing that I've come to believe, too, is that, you know, in some ways, the censorship piece, that's so out in the open you know, you, we know that the committee, January 6th committee hearing piece, video got taken down. Like, you can see when your videos right. are getting hit and taken down and all of those sorts of things. I think probably even more powerful and more pernicious is the impact of um, the algorithms on YouTube and mm. on other platforms as well. Because we can only guess how they work. There's zero transparency. You can sort of, like... You know, I I talked to you for the piece about how we can see the difference between the way we were treated at the Hill by the algorithm and the way we're treated now that we're independent um, uh, by the algorithm. And this was also what uh, Elon Musk kind of floated. You know, he's a big free free speech bro, but he kind of floated out. Maybe we can use the algorithm to suppress speech that we that we don't like. <laughs> Very pro-free um, speech, bro. Yeah, it was kind of what, what he flirted with, too. And so I think a lot of times that's what actually happens. And, and this is, you know, something I've seen really clearly, too, is like new people coming in mm. to the space now, they don't have a prayer because no prayer. you have to— when I go and I search for topics, like explicitly looking for independent news coverage of something like Ukraine is a perfect example. There have been instances where I know a creator I like did a, talked about the topic. I know more or less what the title they put on it is. I'll search for that on YouTube and they still Ugh. won't give me that video. I have to literally go to the creator's channel and find it. Like that's how how hard it is to make it from the bottom now as an independent creator. So, you know, the the right-wing answer to this has been a lot of like, well, we're going to have our own free speech platforms. <laughs> we're going to sort of like, you know, entrepreneur um, our way out of the problem. Um, what do you think is the right answer from the, the socialist left to this issue? Well, I think censorship is, is not it. It's going to hurt left media. I mean, Rania Kalik had a, had a great quote uh, that, I, that I used in that piece where she talked about how, look, uh, the, the, the right uh, has all the billionaires behind them. They can very easily uh, set up, you know, an alternate sort of version of Twitter or an alternate version of YouTube, which they, they, they have because they have, you know, tons of money sloshing around. The left does not. Um, what would happen if you if you got rid of uh, you know you, you if you censored a bunch of right wing stuff or misinformation conspiracy theories on YouTube and, and elsewhere, but then in the process you also basically made it impossible for alternative uh, left media to function. Well, okay, uh, you would no longer have right wing misinformation on, on, on YouTube and stuff, nor would you have. 
have good information from the left, but you would still have uh, cable news. You would still have Fox. You would still have one uh, American News Network. You would have uh, Newsmax. You would have MSNBC. Uh, you would have Sinclair still uh, uh, owning, you know, uh, with the largest share of, of uh, or even the majority of, of local stations in the United States. So it doesn't actually fix the problem of misinformation. It just ends up hurting the left. I think the way to, to, to deal with this is to, again, to look at those uh, root causes. Uh, th- this is the approach that, that as, as people on the left, we always take. We look at kind of structural uh, issues, look at structural causes for why things happen. We don't just kind of look to, uh, to, to, to you know, nefarious individuals and, and try and get rid of them. We know that that's a losing strategy normally. So I think that's a big thing. I mean, you know, the, when I uh, talk about January 6th, I talk about the fact that I think it is significant that most of the people there, which which you know uh, we have pre-documented uh, proof of, were not far-right militia people. They were uh, they were kind of ordinary people, Trump supporters. They were, you know, people who had been convinced that the election had been stolen. They seemed to really, really believe this. And yeah, you know, the question is, why did they come to believe it? Part of it may be that, you know, there was that Washington Post piece that came out uh, shortly after January 6th that looked at some of the people who had been arrested and, and, and charged and, and found that the majority, I think, of them uh, had uh, financial difficulties. They had foreclosures, bankruptcies, all sorts of things uh, along those lines that they were dealing with, debts and, and, and the like. You know, I, I think it's not unreasonable to think that, uh, that there's a link between the wider economic conditions that we're all kind of suffering from, and that some people in particular are suffering uh, more from than, than, than others, and that that drives people into, A, uh, losing trust in all these institutions that, that theoretically we should have trust and faith in, and that it leads them into um, a, a world of kind of craziness and, and lies, because the world has ceased to make sense for them. Uh, you know, the, the things that they were promised uh, from a young age have not eventuated, or the, you know, the, the American dream seems to have been a complete lie. And they end up looking towards kind of alternative explanations for what is going uh, wrong with their lives. And if they're not exposed to kind of the, the, the left-wing argument, which is that, you know, y- your life is worse because the political elite, the political and economic elite in, in the country have basically colluded to take all the economic gains for themselves and leave you nothing. If they're not exposed to that idea, um, then they end up going to some some strange places. Um, and some one of those might be QAnon, one of those might be Stop the Steal. Um, you know, I mean, I think this is this is one hypothesis for myself, but I I think that there is a, a certain amount of evidence for it. And I think we should take that seriously. I'll just add one more thing about this issue, which is that we in the West, in the United States, we're rightly horrified when we read New York Times pieces about the, the information control systems that uh, exist in Russia or China, you know, these authoritarian countries. And we go, oh my God, that's horrible. Imagine how terrible that would be where the, the government sort of controls what you're able to post or what you're able to see on social media and the internet. That's that's terrible. And yet this is exactly where we're moving now in the West as well, uh, particularly in the United States, where we're it, it, and it's and it's being kind of sold to us as desirable, even though when we look at these other countries, 
we say, oh, how horrible, how terrible it would be to, to live in a society like that. So that, that that's a, a level of, uh, or a, an element of cognitive dissonance here that I think people need to really, really think about. Um, does it really make sense that if, we, if we're repulsed by what's happening over there, that we would seek to, to, to put those same systems in place over here? I, I don't think it does. Yeah, you know, uh, to your point, I actually think we're already there because when you look at war reporting, uh, oftentimes mainstream media outlets, their sources are just people inside the intelligence agencies and they run with what they say as if it is fact and they don't question authority, what they're told they run with. And then in terms of the rest of the media landscape, I mean, we're, I think we're kind of establishing here, you have oligarch control of it and they're going to steer it in a direction that appeases uh, the corporations that advertise with them. And so they're going to try to make everything effectively warmed over bullshit, uh, you know, that appeases those advertisers. And they're going to try to copy. I mean, basically what YouTube's tried to done over the years is they've shifted towards, let's just, people are going to YouTube to escape TV, but now let's just make YouTube more like TV so we can get more of those ad dollars. And that's when you get independent creators getting snuffed out. So I wanted to answer your question. You're like, well, what do we do about this? So there's, I see like a, a number of different kinds of censorship. I think there's hard censorship, which is, you know, what we've uh, talked about a bunch of times. And there's also soft censorship. So the hard censorship, like you referenced, Bronco, is Abby Martin was censored. Ronnie Colick was censored. Chris Hedges' show was pulled down off YouTube along with the entire archives. Now, some people say, well, look, it's because he worked for the Russian government and Russia was invading a country and all that stuff. Hey, fair enough. But he also has critiqued the Russian government specifically on this issue, on that platform as well. So to pull it all down, I think is, you know, what's the old saying? Using a um, uh, hatchet instead of a scalpel. And then Jordan Chariton is another great example. This is uh, another version of hard censorship where he had on-the-ground footage from January 6th, and uh, he posted it on his channel. He licensed that same footage to all the major media outlets, CNN, MSNBC, etc., and then YouTube pulled it down on Jordan's channel and left it up on CNN and MSNBC. The same video, yeah. just in one instance on an independent media channel and another one on an authoritative source. And the authoritative source is okay, his is not. And then to your point on the um, the algorithms, this is the soft censorship that I think is incredibly pernicious. Because that's how you know you affect channels like like mine and like breaking points. And you see it. If you, you used to be able to put on autoplay on YouTube and click a secular talk video and you'd get 10, 20 secular talk videos in a row. Now you click autoplay uh, and it starts with a secular talk video and it immediately goes to John Oliver. And so, because those are the, that's the approved edgy outsider. You know what I mean? The one that <laughs> yeah. colors within the lines right. enough where it's okay. And look, I've seen, I'm, I mean, I've talked about this a million times. Everybody in my audience knows it, but I've seen this firsthand. There was a time when a bad month of growth was 20,000 YouTube subs. Now a bad month is I lost a thousand. A good month is I gained a hundred. Now you could say, Hey, some of that had to do with the election and then the election's over. And so now the growth isn't the fair enough, but I see 30% decrease. 40% decrease, not 88% decrease, which is what I saw in the immediate aftermath. And it just so happened to coincide with when the YouTube CEO announced for news and politics, we're going to redirect people towards the authoritative sources. Mm -hmm. So the answer is, there's a couple answers. One of the most straightforward ones is you got to revert back to a more merit-based algorithm. Used to be, if, if you get a lot of eyeballs and a lot of people like, if your subs like your video, then that might get served up to a lot of people. Then they get the opportunity to be introduced to the outlet and then they subscribe to it. That's why you used to see more growth. 
Um, that's one thing. So go back to a more merit-based algorithm. And then the other thing is, and this one is difficult because it's more of a political solution than just a policy change at the top of YouTube. I've advocated for a long time to regulate these social media outlets like they're public utilities. You know, you don't have to fully nationalize them, but you can just regulate them like they're public utilities, expand First Amendment protections, and at least make it so you still wouldn't be able to do libel or slander or any of the things that are actually illegal, but at least there'd be a process by which if something like that happens, you could pull them down and then go through the process. And the default should be, hey, everybody else, you say whatever you want within reason. No yeah. direct threats of violence, no doxing, no targeted harassment. But outside of that, by all means, go ahead. And I would also say mandated transparency around the algorithms. Yes, absolutely. And how they work, because that would be essential to really understand what's going on um, under the hood, as they say. You know, I wanted to, you to draw out, Bronco, a little bit more what you were saying about the parallel in the liberal response to, you know, people saying crazy things and being in QAnon, whatever, and the liberal response to January 6th, because you wrote, you wrote a fairly spicy take on the January 6th <laughs> committee hearings. Um, and you talked about how, look, these are just political theater. I mean, even on the thing that they're purporting to be about, which is holding Donald Trump and his cronies accountable, they're, they're not actually even going to do that. And you say that's because the point of these hearings isn't to actually solve anything, but to serve as political theater that Democrats hope will give voters a reason to back them in this year's midterms. There's nothing wrong with political theater, of course. But the question is, is this actually useful political theater? So draw on that parallel between the liberal response to, you know, the concerns about crazy ideas that people have and the liberal response to, you know, the actions on January 6th. Well, first I want to say that the concerns that people have are completely reasonable and justified. I mean, it's it's not a good thing that thousands of ordinary people storm the Capitol thinking that, you know, the election had been stolen because they'd been basically brainwashed by, by cable news. It's not a good thing that people are falling into some mass delusion that, you know, Donald Trump is at the head of a... Uh, uh, some some anti-pedophile crusade that will end up uh, putting all of conveniently all of the Republicans' political enemies into jail. Uh, even even as Donald Trump, one of Jeffrey Epstein's best friends, uh, <laughs> takes the helm of whatever follows after that. That's none of those are good things. So those are, those are completely reasonable concerns that people have. Um, the the problem is that I think in 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 both of those cases, and in other cases, I think with some other issues that that are, are pretty. Uh, the hot topic right now. Uh, there is a a real desire to kind of do good, to do the right thing, to do the moral thing, to get rid of the bad things, um, without any thought of the practical consequences uh, uh, behind that. You know, uh, without thinking of the what are the potential uh, side effects. You know. Uh, for instance, you know, censorship of, of independent media and, and, and other other media uh, that happens to kind of be, be unfairly targeted. Uh, what does it mean for, in fact, the future of democracy? If, you, if we're worried about democracy uh, being a threat, which is a completely, again, very reasonable and, and I would say uh, quite real uh, a thing to be worried about, then why would we hand uh, the, the kind of most authoritarian institutions uh, in the country, more power to be able to kind of uh, do repression, right in time for you know a right wing uh, majority or a or a, a right wing presidency uh, to be able to use those powers. Um, mm. There isn't really a thought about some of the long term implications about that. Um, there, there, there's a kind of unfortunately the the kind of moralistic 
um, way that we think about things now um, has blinded us to, 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 you know, think about some of the practicalities, the real, real world practicalities. Uh, on, the, on the topic of, of political theater, you know, I mean, I, I have nothing against political theater. Uh, if, if you want to win a lecture, I think a lot of political theater actually uh, can be done in a very useful way. The problem is that, um, you know, I, I, with the January 6th stuff, I mean, I don't think Americans really care that much. I think they obviously think the event was terrible and and and, and embarrassing and, and alarming and all manner of other things, obviously. But uh, is it really the most salient issue in their minds? I mean, I don't think so. I think uh, clearly polling and just, you know, looking around with your own two eyes shows you that most people are worried about the economy, they're worried about inflation, they're, they're uh, you know, worried about their, their livelihoods. Um, and so, you know, if you're going to do some political theater, I, I, I suggested that you should do some political theater around uh, those issues. You know, it wouldn't have been better to, to do the same kind of high profile, um, uh, uh, you know, almost uh, a, a docu-series like uh, uh, coverage of, of you know, uh, politics in, in Congress. Wouldn't it have been better to do that to something like the inflation issue and, and haul a bunch of these CEOs there and, and, you know, kind of point out to people the evidence that shows that they are massively profiting from from using inflation to, to hike prices even further? Um, you know, I mean, I think uh, that would have been great or, or, or to, to, to get some of these pharma CEOs uh, before Congress and and look at the way that they uh, basically are robbing uh, Americans blind um, in a way that's unique in the world. All of that, I think, would have been much more useful political theater. And the Democrats have done that before. Um, they just haven't done it in prime time. Um, but it's very telling that they believe that the, the January 6th stuff is a ticket to, to re-election and not you know, any of these uh, other issues, which I think are a lot more, uh, a lot higher on the priority list of, of most Americans. Well, and do you think that they really think it's going to work? Because, I mean, they, they can read a poll, right? I mean, they may want this to be the issue that's at the front of voters' minds. And again, I don't want to dismiss it because I think the concerns are really real. But also, if you are saying there is a direct threat to our democracy and it's coming from the Republican Party, so rather than focusing on the the issues that voters are telling you they want you to focus on to try to defeat that Republican Party in the midterm elections— you're instead going to try to persuade people that this is the thing that they really should care about and that they really should vo- be voting on in the midterm. So I, I don't know. I'm just skeptical that they even believe that this is going to be an effective political tactic. Yeah, it, it does almost seem like more of a thing for, for their base. And when I say base, I just mean the, the kind of the people who watch MSNBC ritually and, and you know, who are, you know, vote blue no matter who kind of types. Uh, it, it seems like it's more a shoring up of them, um, especially if they know that they're going to lose in November and, and lose catastrophically. They they want to be able to at least say to those, they want to be able to, <laughs> to lose as, as few of those people as possible and, and, you know, sort of, I guess, uh, demonstrate that they are really trying to do something. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It's, it is very difficult to know what exactly the Democrats are, uh, are thinking. Obviously, there's, there's many, <laughs> many Democrats. Uh, so, you know, there's going to be diversity of opinion within uh, those elected officials. But also, um, it, it does kind of feel like they've given up. I mean, it, to me, it made no sense 
way back uh, in, in 2021, um, when people were talking about how, you know, democracy was, was on the edge of, of, of falling apart, of being ended, how this was maybe the last chance to do all these things, because, you know, if they failed, then the Republicans would come back and, and basically, you know, do what they're going to do. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you were hearing uh, arguments from the same people saying, well, we can't get rid of the filibuster. We have to think about the future. Or, you know, well, we can't spend that much uh, you know that's that's a little dangerous. You know we 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 have to be uh, we have to be reasonable about this. I mean, if you really, as you said, thought that democracy was on the precipice of of, of being uh, uh, smothered, then uh, surely you would pull out all the stops in this moment uh, to to try and enact your agenda to try and stop that from happening to try and ensure a, a win uh, in in the midterms. And instead, it's been a, a very uh, conservative. Uh, a strategy that they've taken over the past uh, year. Not not something that you would imagine someone doing if they really believe that this was their last chance to prevent uh, uh, democracy being snuffed out. Democrats don't want to piss off their donors, and this is a way to not piss off their donors and try to rile up their base. Uh, so mm. I used to feel about January 6th, when I first heard there were going to be hearings and this commission and all that stuff, my initial reaction was, waste of time, what's there to study, <laughs> What happened is on video, just arrest the people who committed crimes and let's call it a day. We don't need to study something we already saw happen in every single detail. It seems like it's, um, you know, it's unnecessary. But now having watched some of it, I agree with you, it's theater, but I actually think it's working in this sense. 58% of the country now says arrest Donald Trump over January 6th. You just had the Arizona state speaker uh, get up there, and his name's Rusty Bowers, awesome name, by the way, and he was basically saying that uh, Rudy Giuliani was just trying to get him to, you know, overturn the election, overturn in the state of Arizona. When you have, like, a high-level Republican basically saying, like, these guys are fucking psychos and and we should move past them, I do think that's a landing in the sense that the overwhelming majority of independents are gonzo. Obviously, every Democrat's gone, but even the sane Republicans are now abandoning Trump, which is why 58% say arrest him. So even other Republicans are liking this because they see it, it, it gives them all a chance to have a post-Trump Republican party. So in that sense, I think it's working. But to your guys' broader point, um, they're doing this so that they also don't have to do anything else. And Manchin was basically was caught behind the scenes admitting that. He was talking to Republicans and he said, like, look, you got to give us this January 6th theater effectively because then we don't have to deliver on, you know, Build Back Better and universal pre-K yeah. and elder care and all these other things that we're promised. Yeah, well, and that's the thing is that, you know, their, their response would be like, well, look, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. But they don't. <laughs> but the problem is they don't. Yeah, and, that's right. And the, yeah. and the reality is, I mean, there is a finite amount of public attention and primetime coverage and, you know, legislative hours. And these are these are finite things. So if you are, you know, blowing your load on the January 6th hearings, you are not doing the dragging the monopolists and the price gougers and the Wall Street speculators before Congress and making them that. making them answer for, you know, the pain that they are directly causing the American people. And to your point about how you know, not all political theater is like a, a bad thing. 
after the um, after the 1929 crash, they had the Pecora hearings that really exposed the American public the way that Wall Street had been selling ordinary Americans on you know this investment and that stock and this investment while themselves knowing that this was shit and betting against it. I mean, very similar. We've seen this play out throughout history, but that actually led to so much public outrage that they then came in and regulated the banking industry in a way that made it a much safer, a much more boring place for a long time until, you know, we came in and deregulated more recently. But if you do political theater properly, it can actually generate some demand and some public consensus around changes, around policy, around spending, around whatever it is to actually have an impact beyond just the spectacle. That's true, but they're uh, bought. That's the problem. Precisely. Uh, but uh, yeah, that would mean you'd have to actually care about the right. Violence. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's, that's the problem. <laughs> They're bought and, and corrupt. And, yeah, yeah, and you don't want to. It's it's kind of awkward to uh, to hold you know someone who is giving tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars to your campaign to to dress them down. It's it's not a, a position that I think uh, a lot of politicians want to be want to be in. I mean, yeah, I, I think there there are Democrats that do care about this stuff, but it's there's also so many that would much rather not have to touch any of this. And and yeah, the January 6th issue is 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 kind of the gift that keeps on giving there. You can continually recycle that um and and then not have to, you know, put yourself in this in this slightly difficult situation of of pissing off your your donors. Um the other thing with January 6th, I mean, uh, the the thing I brought up in in the piece I wrote was that uh I think really that what what the whole event boils down to is uh, the Capitol Police, for whatever reason, were not prepared for the size of the crowd, and that was really the only the only reason any of this even happened. Um, yeah. It's actually in that in that video that they uh, compiled the ten minute video that's meant to be sort of full of new shocking images that no one's ever seen, um, uh, which which is not you know I didn't find it that interesting. I'd basically seen everything <laughs> on there uh, before, but one thing there was a a. Uh, a zoomed out bird's eye view of uh, the Capitol rioters, the protesters, whatever you want to say, um, kind of overwhelming the police and, and, and rushing up the steps. And you could see just how few police officers there were there mm. to actually maintain proper crowd control. Um, and we know that there were, you know, oodles of uh, uh, warnings, intelligence warnings that, you know, there was some violence being planned, that there was going to be a big protest, that, that you know, they were going to try and rush the Capitol, that for whatever reason uh, wasn't sent out or wasn't listened to. There was a whistleblower who said that, um, I think it was last year, who said that the, the people, a couple of the officials at the top um, had ignored these warnings and uh, uh, not informed the Capitol Police uh, sufficiently so they could they could properly prepare to, to stop this from happening. Uh, and this whistleblower also alleged that uh, the public was basically not being told the, the full truth about mm. what had happened that day on purpose, that, that Congress itself was, um, was, was, was blocking the truth, was, was refusing to kind of uh, tease out that particular uh, aspect, even though I think it's the, it's the fundamental issue here. Uh, all of these are, are pretty important questions that are completely being ignored because this whole thing is about 
Trump. It's about it's about demonizing Trump, which is very easy to do. Uh, he's a very demonizable person, obviously. He's, a, he's an awful man. Uh, but, uh, I mean, what what is really the long-term consequence of that? Okay, let's say you make Trump too toxic to run against Biden and to win against Biden, um, which, to be honest, I don't even know if that's if that's possible because Trump is incredibly toxic and we've seen that it doesn't really um, seem to have that much effect on his political fortunes. But okay, let's say you manage to get him uh, uh, rejected by the GOP voting base because he's just too too far out there. They're going to go with someone more moderate. Okay, well, then you have, what, Mike Pence, Ron DeSantis? I mean, this whole thing rests on the idea that Trump is the problem with the Republican Party and not that Trump is just the the kind of authentic uh, voice of that party, um, mm. you know, just a less professional, less uh, polished, cleaned up version of it. Um, so you're not really going to get rid of any of the any of the issues that that, that uh, Trump is driving. Um, you're just going to get rid of him as a figure, and then we'll find out that actually the Republican Party is is still the Trump Party even without him at the helm. I'm having flashbacks to my Bill Maher appearance because that's exactly the point that I tried to make in the bar where we were talking about January 6th. If somebody robs the liquor store, Crystal, you arrest them. <laughs> well, I, I literally said, I was do. like, okay, sure, prosecute Trump. No problem. Fine with that. I mean, I do think it's disgusting that you have all of these, you know, 800 people or whoever who've been charged and going to prison and book thrown at them, um, who, you know, many of whom really believe they were like being patriots on this day, which is sad. And is to your point, like what we really need to dig into is what could lead a significant percent of the American public to believe that to be the case. And then the the top level people who were stirring all of this up are, are kind of let off the hook. But OK, fine. Prosecute Trump. You're not solving the real problems. And what, you think it's going to be so much better if we end up with Ron DeSantis as the Republican nominee? And his response was, yes, yes, I do. I think that would be better. (laughs) And it's like, exactly. I mean, Uh, what do you do with that? Because it's like, why do you think that he would really behave any differently when, look, Trump has laid out the roadmap here. It's not like Republicans have had some great relationship with commitment to democratic norms prior to Donald Trump. So they stole the 2000 election. <laughs> it, yeah, and successfully. I Bush mean, that's the thing. Did that. that you probably get someone who's more competent to actually steal it next time around. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's kind of I think that was a real window, though, into a lot of the liberal thinking was like, yeah, we actually do think that Trump is the singular problem that if we just, you know, get him arrested and in jail, we're going to be good to go. And um, by doing that, you let a whole other host of people off the hook for creating the circumstances that would allow someone as awful as Trump to ascend to the presidency. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think the, the other thing to mention as well is that uh, the response to January 6th so far that, that has happened, it, it, you know, very much like the, uh, the, the censorship uh, discussion, it's, it's all been about ramping up the repressive powers of, of the, the national security state. It's, it's been very incremental. It's been bit by bit. So there's nothing that's been too radical that's happened, but it just keeps advancing little by little. Uh, and, and, and that similar to the, to the way that these, um, uh, content moderation policies have been used against left media, uh, as anyone could have predicted, these kind of heightened anti-terrorism policies are already being, uh, directed at, um, at the left. Uh, there was a, a, the, the case of Daniel Baker, he was, he was a guy, an anarchist uh, in in Florida um, who was very spooked by what he saw on January 6th 
And you know, at the time, there were all these warnings that there was going to be a a um, a big uh, well, there were going to be big rallies everywhere. There were going to be sort of many January sixth sixths in all these different uh, states, all these different state capitals. Mm-hmm. One of them being Tallahassee. He was very worried about that. He was very worried about a kind of you know far right takeover of the government. Um, whatever you want to feel about how plausible that is, that that was what he really felt. And he started putting out flyers saying, you know, we're gonna we're gonna defend the the capital with arms if necessary. Um, he did a bunch of social media posts uh, that were pretty inflammatory along the same lines. And the Republican, uh, uh, I think it was the Attorney General, but it was a, a, a prosecutor, a Republican prosecutor in, in, in Florida. Uh, you know, these posts came to his attention and they ended up raiding his house, even though it, it doesn't seem like he had any any real plan. You know, he was just doing, he was posting. He was posting. Mm. But they raided his house, uh, you know, with like flashbang grenades and everything. They oh, they geez. scared the bejesus out of his elderly uh, landlady who, who lived next door. Um, they arrested him and he's now in, in jail for, I think, three years, um, <sighs> basically wow. for social media posts. And, and in, the, uh, in the indictment, they listed, you know, here's all these things he said. Oh, look, he has an eat the rich uh, post. He talks Based. about in this YouTube video, uh, you know, learning martial arts to fight people. Oh, look, he went to um, to, to Chaz in Seattle. You know, this guy's a real <laughs> danger. So they were using the exact kind of logic that people have been using for the, the January 6th riders. And I, when I talk about them, I mean, like, you know, the, just the nonviolent ones who sort of just walked in and, Walked around and took selfies and maybe maybe stole something, you know. Uh, they use the same logic to to go to 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 throw the book at him, and it's not just him. I mean, before January sixth in twenty twenty, the the most number of uh, terrorism prosecutions were against Black Lives Matter protesters. Wow. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, and and that's still going on. I mean, after January sixth, there was someone I spoke to who was a um, uh, who, who I think was a, was a Black Panther back then. He was a black militant. He was recently released from jail. After January 6th, the FBI, there's a video of it, the FBI came to his house and sort of knocked on the door and said, hey, we just want to check in on you, make sure that you're not planning on doing anything along with some of these other people that we saw in the Capitol, which is absurd, obviously. Um, But the the way that the national security state, the way that kind of law enforcement views this stuff, it's all the same to them. It's just general disorder. And, And that is, you know, I mean, that is what they exist to stop. And so... Any form of disorder, whether it's a protest against police brutality, whether it's a protest against uh, an action on climate change, whether it's a, it's a protest against you know uh, uh, the the rising uh, poverty in this country, anything is going to be viewed the same way and treated the same way as um, you know January sixth. So so unfortunately, we're seeing kind of the same uh, blowback against left wing causes. Uh, from January 6th that ironically, you know, uh, I think most liberals will be shocked about, but they don't hear about this stuff because it doesn't get reported anywhere other than, you know, independent media. So uh, the intelligence agencies are not our friend. I've taken I've taken <laughs> note of that. Um, so I, I want to ask you this before we wrap up. You wrote a piece recently basically saying Bernie 2024. <laughs> now I am, uh, I, I love Bernie. I mean, he, I, I voted for him multiple times. Um, he did, he deserves credit for sparking a revolution in a sense and, um, waking people up politically uh, in the younger generation. I could sit here and list a thousand things that I think he contributed that were incredibly positive, even just in terms of his policy focus, which I think he's, I think he's very rational in terms of 
how he prioritizes stuff and what he talks about most and raising the status of Medicare for all and the national consciousness. I don't think we'd be in a place where a majority of Americans support it if it wasn't for Bernie talking about it the way that he talked about it. Um, however, however, it's, it ain't Bernie 2024. And there's two reasons why I'd say um, he's not the one for the moment. Number one, I do think there's a leadership problem there. And what I mean by that is he had the opportunity to put his boot on the neck of Joe Biden in the last race, and he actively chose not to do it. I know, remember when there was the press conference the night after Bernie got shellacked, and he was asked the question, softball down the center of the plate from a reporter, he was asked, do you think Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump? And Bernie's response after getting draxed the night before was, yeah, sure, I think, I think he could win. Now, personally, I don't care if Bernie really believed that or didn't believe that. You do not give that answer if you want to win. You have to be on, uh, on the offense and you have to be saying, we ran this experiment in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. She was the safe candidate and she lost to Donald Trump. I'm the only one who can defeat this guy here. You need a political revolution and it's me. And he didn't do that. Now, that's just one example of a leadership, a, a good modern iteration of the leadership problem is he keeps saying to the media, I'm not going to run if Joe Biden runs again. Well, what kind of fucking message does that send as if this guy is an OK substitute for you? Because he's not. He's not even close to an OK substitute for you. The guy's basically Joe Manchin at this point. He's sitting Policy on his ass right all day. Literally to just tell the Fed he's, to trigger a recession. He's doing nothing. He has the opportunity to legalize marijuana today. He's not doing it. He has the opportunity to um, eliminate student loan debt today. He's not doing it. So that's the, I see a leadership problem with Bernie. He made none of the arguments he needed to make when the tides turned in the last race. He didn't know how to go for the jugular. He literally benched Zephyr Teach out because she wrote a, an op-ed going after um, Biden's corruption. He was not only was he mad about it, he benched her as a result of that. And the other problem he has is, and it ties into the leadership problem, but it's the insider problem. He's been in Washington too damn long. And even though in many ways he's maintained his his independence and he's stayed true to the policy beliefs that he believes in, he has no viable plan to get these things implemented. He could have, by the way, when he dropped out of the race in 2020, he could have sat down with Joe Biden and said, look, I'll give you my endorsement, but here are my demands. Here's a list of 10 executive orders that you're going to sign within the first week. And it could have included stuff like student loan debt elimination. He could have done some horse trading and got real concessions that were guaranteed. And he didn't do that. He did some sad video conference call with Joe Biden where he's like, Joe, do you support the $15 minimum wage? And Biden's like, yeah, I'm to, whatever. Okay, are you going to endorse me? So, so I see those are serious problems, a leadership problem and an insider problem. And I'm definitely much more interested in looking at somebody like Marianne Williamson this time around who comes with all the positives of Bernie Sanders. But she has the outsider element, number one. She has a, a better conception of how to lead in this political climate because she's uh, made connections with outsiders. She's not making connections with insiders. She's seeking the advice of people like you and me and people who have been trying to figure out a way to actually bring about change. And she also has something that Bernie doesn't have. But look, I'm more like Bernie personally in that I'm like the straight shooter guy who just says it, no nonsense. But Marianne speaks of something deeper. Marianne is not just the straight shooter. She also has a phenomenal ability to talk people who are otherwise hopeless out of their hopelessness, to tell, to, to explain to them in like spiritual terms and energy terms, like, look, we're working on something bigger than us here. And like, we got to get up and at them and we got to get to it. So I think there's some positives that she has that Bernie doesn't have. And um, I just, 
And he's also a thousand years old. I love him, but dude, people are going to look at you at some point like, let's go lay in a beach in Mexico, bro. What are you doing? Like, just wrap it up, retire. We love you. You worked hard for us throughout your entire life, but you got to wrap it up. So I know that's a, I'm giving you a lot to respond to here, <laughs> but tell me why any of my analysis is incorrect. I mean, well, look, we, we could go on and on about the various mistakes that, that the Sanders campaign made. Uh, not going after Biden was one, you know, uh, not uh, trying to push, uh, 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 Jesus, I'm, I'm blanking on his name now, um, South Carolina. Uh, oh, Clyburn. Clyburn. Yeah, Clyburn. Clyburn. Uh, yeah. not, not pushing Clyburn to to not endorse Biden. Um, it, there's, a, there's many things. Not actually expanding the grassroots organizing that, that helped. Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, beyond those states, um, in, uh, you know, to go further because he is uh, Bernie's kind of cheap. Everyone says this; he, he's very, very frugal. Uh, sometimes to his detriment. So there's there's many, many uh, uh, things you could point to. I think it's also worth pointing out that uh, for someone who who calls himself a, a, a socialist, a self-proclaimed socialist, and who really occupies the most left word uh, point possible in the very, very narrow um, United States political uh, uh, consensus. Um, I mean, he came closer to winning than, than anyone ever did. The, the, the fatal thing that happened was that the Democrats didn't repeat the Republican mistake of 2016. They realized that if everyone stays in the race, this guy's going to, you know, potentially cruise to a plurality. So uh, they they did what they did. They, they got out and they got behind Joe Biden, who, by the way, you know, Without Sanders kind of going against him and, and hitting him, Biden was uh, was was losing horribly uh, in those first three states. I mean, it's never happened in, in, in the history of Democratic primaries that a, a guy has lost the, all three primaries and then uh, gone on to get the nomination. So, so you know, I, I think there has to be a strategy if he runs next time to, to prevent that from happening. Um, I think expanding that grassroots operation is, is one of those ways. But I think ultimately... I think he's still the most viable uh, person. I don't really see a successor uh, in Congress. I don't see anyone who, like Sanders, is, is able or even willing to talk to people uh, uh, outside of the kind of typical liberal bubble to try and actually persuade people who wouldn't otherwise hear or, or listen to some of these ideas. I, I, I only said it was Sanders. And Sanders is a very, very effective communicator. Um, uh, there was actually a good piece by, by Ben Burgess recently that kind of broke down some of the some of the differences, let's say, between um, Sanders and some of his younger, uh, 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 whatever, uh, mentees, I guess, in, in the House. Um, so I don't really see another, another politician um, who can equal him in that? He's still very popular, still the most popular, according to YouGov, the most popular working politician around. Uh, he uh, he is actually a very effective uh, uh, person. You mentioned that 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 uh, it, it's you can't see how he would implement a lot of this thing, uh, a lot of the stuff he's promising. I mean, the the I think it's worth looking back to Sanders' time as mayor of Burlington. Um, as, as ridiculous as that might sound, people might say, oh, Burlington's a tiny little uh, uh, town. You know, how, how can they have any lessons for anything going forward? But what Sanders did in that, in that, in that town, in that city, uh, is kind of a preview of what could happen if there's an actual movement uh, behind him um, on, a, on a national scale. I mean, he faced incredible gridlock uh, and hostility from, from the, the kind of city establishment and was able to rally people uh, uh, to the point that he was able to kind of, you know, uh, uh, change the political balance of power in the city and finally enact 
uh, things he wasn't able to enact, um, you know, after after a year of basically just being completely stifled. Because he's someone who knows the value of the bully pulpit. He knows the the value of having links to to, to activist communities and the labor movement. Um, you know, you mentioned Marion Williamson. Marion Williamson is a very good communicator. I don't think she's as uh, well. She she has no political experience. I mean, Bernie. Yes, his time in Washington does. Yeah, make that's a, a good thing. No political experience, well, I view as a good thing now. I really do because I think what I think this area just absolutely brainwashes people. And to your point on Bernie fighting, you're right. But where is that now? He, I interviewed him and he well, told he me when he ran, "Look, I will go to West Virginia and call out Joe Manchin to his face and rally his people." And then when we had the Build Back uh, Better argument, he wrote an op-ed calling out. Um, Joe Manchin, and then he didn't go to West Virginia. And so, look, he does have this instinct of like, yeah, I want to get stuff done, but there are well, certain he, rules on, of decorum and civility in D.C. You, that I'm not going to violate. You're talking about uh, Santa's post loss, where basically the, the decision he made was, I'm, I'm going to try and uh, uh, get something done by basically working with Biden and, and not, that pers- and not that pissing work? off. Well, well, hold on. I mean, it, he was basically allowed to write uh, the bill that he was going to pass. The problem is that when you're attached to a president who <laughs> is like Biden, um, you, you rely on the prison uh, basically making that happen, and that that didn't happen. Um, yeah, but that's the problem. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> if he, it'll be a different story if he's prison. The problem is that we're talking about uh, Sanders in a, in, a, in a defeat zone. I think the other thing about Williamson, okay, you know, I, I think it is actually it is important to to have um, some knowledge of the workings, workings of DC uh, and to be able to, you know, wield the the, the immense power of the executive um, in an effective way to, to be able to, you know, some of the, know some of the legislative ins and outs. Um, but beyond that, I mean, uh, Sanders still has a lot of links with the labor movement. I mean, you know, he, despite, I know that, you know, obviously he disappoints some of the Amazon workers by by not, not showing up um, uh, to, to support them in, in some instances, but still very much, uh, you know, very beloved within the labor movement uh, as there's this rising tide of labor militancy. Uh, just the other day uh, or the other week at Labor Notes, um, he was met with a very, very uh, uh, enthusiastic reception there. You know, people saying Bernie 2024 and this kind of thing. Uh, that's a really key thing. I mean, to me, there's no real negative to him running. Uh, there's only positives because even if he loses, it would at the very least uh, highlight one, a bunch of issues that Sanders cares about that no one else is really going to talk about. Uh, but number two, also highlight some of these uh, labor fights that are that are happening. And hopefully this 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 tide of labor militancy continues to to increase into 2024. But a, a campaign that is linked with that that kind of rising labor movement, I think could be very effective, even if he loses, It'll be an important thing um, for for uh, you know workers around the country, and it's worth noting that that the last few times he ran, I mean, he his campaign by virtue of talking about the things that he talked about, did um, it wasn't the only factor by any means. It wasn't even the main factor, but it was a factor in radicalizing a lot of workers, the teachers. Uh, the striking teachers in red states, for, for sure. instance, um, yeah. after 2016. No, no, so, yeah, one, think, yeah. no one here is arguing that he hasn't done tremendous, tremendous good. And yeah, that's I think, a given. Yeah, that's a given. and, and I absolutely see his um, his influence all over the rising labor movement, which is the most hopeful thing that is going on in America right now. But to me, the most um, sort of damning point is that he has already said, if Biden's in, I won't run. Right. I mean, what does which that is, say? What does that say? Which is... I mean, it does kind of say it all about where he positions himself 
within the the mainstream of the Democratic Party now. I mean, his will he's always had a problem challenging Joe, who I think, you know, was personally kind to him in the Senate. I get it. It's hard to go after people and challenge people that you know on a personal level. But to look at the state of affairs in America right now and take yourself out of the game even, you know, before you get to the starting line, that's different than he was in the past. I mean, he flo- he he flirted he said, with the idea of I'll running against Obama. Obama. I'll primary yeah. Obama. He said that, and he got a lot of shit for so, it. But so, he was right to say that. He was right to say that back well, he then. Didn't do it. He, he yeah, didn't do it. But, I know, but, but he was he, right to threaten it. He's not even threatening well, sure, it now. Sure, sure. Right. He, and I so, mean, so ultimately, really I mean, but so to me, that's that's kind of the ultimate. It makes this all kind of moot because I think Biden is going to run again because if he's alive, if they can prop him up whatsoever, because they know that Kamala Harris doesn't have a chance to win. So I think he will run again. And Bernie's already said, I defer to Joe. Well, yeah, I mean, look, this is all fantasy booking because at the end of the day, uh, yeah, it, d- it depends on whether or not Biden's going to run. Um, I mean, I, I don't think... Uh, We'll see what happens. I mean, the, I wrote this basically saying, you know, if if it happens, it'll be a good thing. Um, I don't know if Biden probably will run at the same time. I mean, Biden's approval ratings are, are, are you know, absolutely dire right now. Um, and that's even before the, the, the midterm massacre that's coming up. Um, after the midterms, there's all manner of things that, that are on the horizon. There's um, uh, probably a series of bruising uh, congressional uh, inquiries into a whole host of scandals because the Republicans are going to try and do to Biden what they what, what what the Democrats kind of did to Trump. That might inc- improve his his approval ratings among Democrats, or it might you know make them go hmm, actually maybe we don't want this guy to run again. There's also I mean the economy is 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 tanking and it looks like it's only going to continue to go in that direction because uh, the the U.S. isn't really or the Biden administration is not really doing anything to try and um, stop this, uh, to end this war. Um, so, you know, economic conditions are going to get worse. Uh, I also, I, I'll be honest, I don't understand how they're going to run him again, because, I, which is not to say that they won't, but I just don't understand how they can. Because in, in 2020, when, you know, he's going to be quite a bit younger and healthier than he will, will be in 2024, uh, he had an excuse to never be out in public, not do any campaigning, um, not really do anything, uh, which was that, oh, you know, we have a pandemic going. And so therefore, for the, I'm going to be sensible and I'm going to sit here and, and, and not do anything. That excuse does not exist in 2024. So I, I'm really puzzled by how they're going to do that. Uh, but that's a side point. I mean, I, I think uh, it's worth waiting to see what exactly happens in the next uh, two, three years, because a lot can change. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, but if it does change, I, I still think Sanders is the most effective. And, and you know, as a just a a movement candidate, more than, you know, whether he's going to win or not, I think uh, um, he he's the best person to, to run for all the reasons I mentioned. But, you know, it doesn't mean that, that Marianne Williamson or anyone else can't run. You know, it's going to be a contest. So mm-hmm. if, if that does happen, people will get to uh, get to decide, you know. I mean, look, if Bernie runs, I'm a very simple dude. And I see, hey, how do you feel about the issues I care about? And he checks the boxes in virtu- on virtually every single issue. So he's absolutely somebody, if I, if I had to vote for him again, I'd do it in a heartbeat and I'd do it with a smile on my face. Um, but the biggest issue I keep coming back to with him is that he keeps framing differences with Joe Biden, differences with the Democratic Party is, well, we just have like a gentleman's disagreement. It's not. It's life and death and that Washington civility politics is a cancer, and the corruption of the Democratic Party and Joe Biden is evil. 
And he won't call a spade a spade on that front. 90% of the time, he calls a spade a spade, and he keeps it real. But he misses at, at, the cr- at a crucial point. He misses it. And so that's why I like somebody else. But we'll see what happens. If he ends up running and Marianne doesn't, I'll vote for him. If he doesn't run and Marianne runs, I'll be voting for her. Uh, but either way, we appreciate you making the case here. And everybody, everybody <laughs> well, sh- should go check out that article that you wrote. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Now, you can get the last word. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Well, no, I, I'll just say I, I don't agree that that, uh, that Sanders is, is someone who's just, you know, kind of, uh, he's always a straight shooter. And then, uh, but in this case, he's not. I Actually, I, I, th- I quite the opposite. I think he's very, very disciplined and highly calibrated around what he says and how he says it. And he's he's constantly, you know, he's a politician. I mean, you know, he's an effective politician because he's able to kind of thread these needles. But, but you know, I mean, I think uh, looking at some of the stuff that he's saying publicly about Biden, I mean, I think you also have to keep in mind that's, that's stuff of public consumption. A lot of the stuff that hurt him with the Democratic base is he was seen as kind of someone who was going to um, destroy the party or, you know, who was like uh, 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 against the party. That perception uh, hurt him against some of the voters, and I think you know you gotta you gotta view some of these statements in that context that he's kind of playing to that particular crowd. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, I think look uh, whether this happens, I think we'll we'll have a very uh, spirited uh, debate if and when it does. But uh, at the moment, yeah, we'll we'll see if we, it actually ends up eventually. We've tried the carrot approach a hundred times. It's time for the stick. And we've we've gotten the moral victories. The moral victories have been achieved. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. But we we yeah. should be so lucky as to have like multiple <laughs> leftist candidates no, no, no. who are no, no, no. I who want, are challenging. No, no, no. I want one. Not going to fracture the vote seventeen thousand different ways. That's a recipe to lose. Mm-hmm. And the establishment understands that. We should understand that too. It should be one. And they should get in a room together, and everybody decides who it is, and then we're all behind them. Mm-hmm. We got to get serious about getting yeah, power. None of this patty cakes true. bullshit. It's okay if everybody runs. Fuck that. Fuck that. <laughs> one. And then we win. That's how we do it. Yeah, and not just the moral victories this time. No, yeah. Fuck moral victories. I'm done with moral victories. <laughs> um, Bronco, your writing has been uh, wonderful and essential. I really recommend. We didn't even get a chance to get into Ukraine where you have done some phenomenal analysis and reporting. So I really highly recommend people take a look at your work on that as well. Um, thank you so much for taking time with us today. We're really grateful for it. Thanks, dude. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. Thanks. Our pleasure. All right, that was Bronco Marcetic. I hope I wasn't too uh, aggressive there. <laughs> it was feisty. It was spirited. Yeah, but no. you know, like, inc- I love Bernie, but dog, if you couldn't wrap it up last time. Well, I think it's that, um, you know, the thing that was good about the way you argued it is you had an alternative. Because you can't just be like, not, not Bernie, Bernie but then else. you were like, yeah. well, who then? You know, and it's, ugh, there's not there's not a lot of alternatives out there. But I agree with you. I think Marion has some strikes that are different from Bernie. He has, she mean, has some of the, uh, a lot of the positives Bernie has. Certainly she's very clear-eyed about the agenda that we need. She's very clear-eyed about the failures of the Democratic Party. And, you know, she, she has, I think that's a great point you made, that she has spent her time cultivating contacts and relationships with the outsiders and the independent media rather than trying to become part of the club right. in the interim. That says and, everything. And she's moved further left from her last race, too. She has. That's she's true. She's moved further left. Um, you know, I used to go after her for the Crystal Lady stuff. But what I notice now that I didn't notice then, and also the time was different then. Now we're in a, a post-Trump world. We're in with a Democratic Party run by Joe Biden. Yeah. And... Step number one is not just straight shooting, tell it like it is anymore. 
Step number one is like reminding people that anything good is possible. That anything's possible. And That's she so has true. the ability to do that, whereas Bernie's more, you know, he's like me. You just get on the stump and do your speech about universal health care and <laughs> higher wages. And we need a little more than that right now. We I need a little more than that right now. Yes, that's right. And I also feel like... Um she occupies a good position because she's Bernie adjacent, but she's not directly tied to Bernie. And I think that may give her the ability to reach some um, potential voters and supporters that, you know, if you were just like very clearly, okay, this is who Bernie has picked as the next person, that you may have more limitations because there is that, you know, there is some faction that is concerned about always dividing the party and wants to destroy the party, et cetera, et cetera. And I see her having... Um, you know, an ability to kind of reach a very broad audience and build a coalition and knowing how and and knowledge of how to do that. And I, I'm sorry, I just flat out prefer outsiders to insiders at this point. It's not even like I, I hate the, uh, the institutionalist argument of like, you have to understand behind the scenes. No, 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 no. You want somebody to come in from the outside who has a clear goal or clear goals in mind and then do whatever they can through that system to get it to work. Any potential benefit from the insider knowledge is overwhelmingly outweighed by the detrimental effect <laughs> that DC has on people. 100%, and, 100%. and we've seen it, you know, I, I don't want to like pick on the squad, but we have seen it with the squad. Like the longer oh. that each of these members is in DC, the more they can form. That's, right. that's just, mm -hmm. that's just mm -hmm. how it is. And, and I, under I understand it on a human level from a certain perspective, but that is the reality is the benefits that you might get from understanding how to pull this lever or that lever um, are vastly outweighed by the fact that it will break you down. It will crush your hopes. It will convince you nothing can ever change. It will tell you that the only way to pursue change is to, you know, sell out to the donor class and you end up with just a repeat of the same thing that we've had over and over again. Right. True. Uh, but everybody should go read his article on that and also go read his article on um, left censorship on social media. Um, I think it's really important. And he's one of the only people, certainly one of the only writers, who's talking about this. Usually it's yeah. up to the YouTubers themselves and the independent media hosts themselves to be like, God, get screwed. fucked over yeah. here. But now and you have some verification from outsider. And I really do recommend people check stuff. out his work on Ukraine as well because he's been a very uh, clear and, and very um, brave, I would say, voice and very prescient ultimately on Ukraine, calling out the Biden administration for having no interest in negotiating a settlement. So check out his work on that as well. Which I, think has been I think that's fair, but at risk of opening up a can of worms here, I don't think Vladimir Putin exactly is looking for peace either. Sure. Yeah. Like, yeah, but where our active policy is to keep the war going indefinitely. There's no doubt. There's yeah. no doubt and that so, that's the policy. You know, and that's the UK and the US, which is in opposition to France and Germany and what they would like to see. So um And in opposition probably to Ukraine. Yes. Right. And, right. And and then the other piece, of course, is the fact that, you know, the economic warfare that we've been engaged in, not only has it not worked, it's actively backfired. Well, that's so the that part that I learned Putin about recently. Is, and that's Putin crazy. is richer than he's ever been before. And we've sanctioned our own people and we've heard ordinary. It's It's well, been so a complete disaster. Give everybody that fact that you told me last night about. So we banned the import of Russian oil and gas. Mm -hmm. And so what Russia does is they turn around and sell more of it to India. And, and then India turns around and marks it up and sells it to us. Yes. So we're, right. So we're, we're not even more for the same. We gas. think <laughs> we're, oh, we're, you know, doing the new noble thing. Oh, by the way, by getting more gas from 
from the, the moral, great moral power of Saudi Arabia. But whatever, put that, that part aside. It's not even true because, yeah, what, what the Indians are doing, the Chinese and the Indians have made up a lot of what, you know, we stopped buying from the Russians and what others around the globe have. Um, and what the Indians are doing is buying it at the discounted price from the Russians and then reselling it to us at a premium price. So it's been a complete, it's completely backfired. Uh, the ruble is the best performing currency on the globe this year. Okay. Record-breaking oil profits into the coffers of Vladimir Putin because of our policy. And we're still pretending like this is a good idea. And Biden gave that speech the other day where he was like lecturing people over the high gas prices. Like, this isn't a price you'd pay to free Ukraine. What's wrong with you? Right. And <laughs> like, if like, that <laughs> was, if it was, you know, if the policy was actually working, you could have an argument about it. I would still have some issues with it, but you could have an argument. But the policy is not working. It is literally doing the opposite of the intended effect, but we just got to keep pushing anyway, forward. Because I, don't, I don't know how we got on this side tangent. Because <laughs> the, the reason is because Bronco's been making some great points oh, okay. about Ukraine. I haven't and read great his stuff analysis, on Ukraine. You so swear by it. I haven't read his stuff on Ukraine. Take a look. Yeah. That's the bottom All right. line. All right, guys. Uh, we love you. Everybody shoot on over to Substack and uh, pay $5 a month. Then you get the video of the show a day early. Thank you to everybody who's already signed up on Substack. You guys mean the world to us. And for everybody else, uh, you can wait until Saturday, a day later, and the audio version of the podcast drops for free for everybody. But I highly recommend that you sign up on Substack because you wouldn't get to see Crystal's beautiful outfit. Oh, you, well, thank you. you. And show everybody the nails. Show how the nails match the outfit. Yes, you indeed. Like Just for today. Tomorrow, I'm sure I'll wear something that doesn't match. And then show the yeah. earrings that also match the outfit. Kyle picked the earrings. We're all decked out skis today. Them, Kyle's fault. Yeah, I'm, I'm very good. I'm very good with <laughs> fashion choices, which is why you lean on me for them. I'm currently wearing slippers. <laughs> Guys, zoom out. And, I'll show everybody. and sweatpants. We got slippers, which I wear literally all the time right here. And I got sweatpants on. But they look like actual dress pants because it's the same color as my jacket. So this is, I mean, look. And I'm kind of guilty because I'm, the, looks, one who, I'm looks, the one who bought you those it pants. It looks like it's a suit, it's a suit right? <laughs> I mean, look, some people say I'm a genius. Those people are right. So anyway, I'm all comfy and whatnot. All right, love you guys. I don't know where, where we veered this podcast to, but we'll talk to you guys soon.